Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Um, we're going to continue our uh, Through Nicaea series today. I'm not really sure how far we'll get um, because, well, I'm not really sure how long these notes are going to take to get through. But today we're starting Arianism and uh, we'll see um, where we get from there. Now I have to apologize in advance for rain in the background if you hear it. I'm not sure if you can or not. The fact of the matter is I have a metal roof and it's been raining on an awful day and I don't really have other blocks to record in. And so I'm having to work with what I can. Um, so we are going to pick up on a little bit of history and then we'll go back into theology and um, we're going to kind of blend them because so far we've talked about the historical survey where we've gone from the early church to 381. And then we talked about pre-Nicene heresy and we're going to introduce a new one now with Arianism. And then we talked about pre-Nicene Orthodox teachers in the last episode in their theology. And now we're going to move on. So following the modalist controversy, so we're talking around three the 300s, and we're going to jump right into it. So Alexander of Alexandria um, had a disciple or a subordinate, rather, um, named Arius. And he arose onto the scene and he started challenging Alexander's theology in about 318. Now, Arius's position was deemed heretical uh, because he claimed that the son was not co-eternal with the father and that the son came into existence out of nothing and was a creature. Um, I want to go ahead and stop right here and say we talked about some key definitions in the last episode at the beginning. So all of these episodes are going to kind of rely on each other. So if you haven't heard the ones before this, it's probably best to listen to those to get the full context of what's happening here. Um, that way I don't have to repeat myself as much as I already do. Now, Arianism is a big deal uh, because it would actually spread and take hold quite a bit. It would probably be the biggest challenge, and that's why it's hit on so much. But what's not often discussed is how many Arians there were. And then politics would come into play, too. And so then you would have Arians on the seat of the empire on the eastern side, against, you know, the Nicene Christians on the Western side, and it caused a lot of tension. Like, we've already looked at, well, we'll look at Athanasius, and Athanasius was excommunicated by an Arian emperor at some point. And we talked about that in the survey, I believe, so. But Arianism, uh, we talk about it often in history books, but I think we don't really grasp how um, widespread it became and how much it had to be dealt with, especially with the confusion of language, because... What you'll find is that after 325, um, things get a little bit more complex. In fact, we often simplify it for the sake of discussing it, which we'll also do here because it gets complicated. Um, anyway, so he Arius receives a decent amount of attention, and we're going to focus on Arius and Arianism here uh, because of how pressing that controversy would be and how it frames the historical context of the Nicene Creed. Of course, uh, the Nicene Creed and the Creed at Constantinople in 381 Um, are not only addressing Arianism. And as we walk through the creed, we'll talk about that, but we'll move on from here. So Arius was born in 256, and our original writings from him are very limited. And uh, what he was said to have typically taught is determined by writings against him predominantly, which means that sometimes they can be exaggerated. Now, Arianism picked up its name from Arius, but many such as Robert Lethem, Daniel Willems, um, Francis Young, etc., have noted that Arius himself was pretty insignificant in hindsight. Uh, in fact, 
Within the first generation of Aryans, the term Aryans can hardly be found, while those who were labeled as Aryans denied connections to Arius or being Aryans. So just as well, it's it's understood that Arius himself had actual, uh, actually little to do in the theological discussions as seen in Nicene writings. And Arius is hardly addressed, um, so that's significant as well. Um, in terms of his involvement, someone even goes so far to say that Arius' greatest contribution to the whole thing was just his name. Um, Athanasius, um, a Christian writer that we'll talk about later, would go after Arius, but he had no interaction personally with Arius because Arius had passed away before uh, the rise of Athanasius as an, uh, a theological influence, so to speak, even though Athanasius is um, present at the Council of 325. So the name Arius became a placeholder for those who lived and shared views similar to Arius because there were slight differences. Uh, Robert Lethem summarizes in this way, Arius belonged to the past, to the world of the third century, and its problematics. Athanasius to the fourth and a new way of thought. He was not a significant writer, nor was he regarded any such by the people of his own day. He was hardly ever quoted by friend or foe. He was never seen as a founding father of a movement. The polemics that arose later in the 4th century were directed at others. His name is simply a term of theological abuse. The controversy over his views uh, subsided after Nicaea. Not until 357 did the crisis erupt in clearly articulated form. In Hansen's words, he was the spark that started the explosion, but in himself, he was of no great significance. And that's from Robert Lethem on the Holy Trinity, uh, page 112, I think. Or it's 112 or 115. So I'm going to rely on Robert Lethem and Young again. Um, Arius' claims can be summarized beginning with understanding that uh, Arius had a particular view of soteriology or salvation, right? Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation, not God or cosmology, which is often uh, kind of presupposed. So his view of salvation, not creation, drove his view, and we're going to still frame it beginning with theology proper, right? The doctrine of God. Um, so first, uh, there was a stress on the unity of one God. Uh, God the Father is completely unique. Next, the Son had an origin out of nothing. There was a time when the Son did not exist, and he was created by the will of God. Uh, God was not always the Father until he created the Son. As a creature, the Son, or the Word, has a changeable nature, he's not immutable, and he remains good by his own free will. Finally, the substance, or usiae, of the Father and Son and Spirit are divided and differ from one another. So they have different natures, or they're divided natures. Uh, the Father is the cause of the Son's origin, and the Father is the, the Son's God. Um, interestingly for Arius, there is also a concept of wisdom in which the Son was brought into existence by the means of the wisdom. And so the Word of God is actually alongside the Son, not the Son himself. But the Son shares in this wisdom, or the Logos, or the Word. And so he's given grace to be called the Word and the Son. A little sidebar here, too, is if you talk to like modern adoptionists, um, if you don't remember what that is, you can go back a couple episodes. But adoptionism, um, some of them make this distinction as well. And that's how they'll read John 1 in light of the word was pre-existence, but it was wisdom, and wisdom and the Son together allow for Jesus to be called the word and the Son, uh, not necessarily that the Son is the word in himself. 
But of course, within the whole context of John 1, that becomes very difficult to um, validate as an interpretation. Anyway, um, as mentioned, it was Arius' soteriology, or his doctrine of salvation, that drove him. Um, because for Arius, Christ needed to be a creature in order to have a close link to human beings. So his emphasis was he needs to be closely linked to humans, and so he was a creature. Uh, the son had free moral choice. That was a big sticking point. Uh, so like human beings, the son had free human choice. Uh, he advanced in virtue and obedience, and he became perfected in that obedience. Um, he was always dependent and subordinate to God. Um, and this, actually, this particular understanding, which really leads to a works righteousness, is present in modern Arianism as well, um, which uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are a variation of Arianism. They're not necessarily exactly the same on all points. Um, so where unity of the Son and the Father are mentioned, it is held that there is a unity in the will because of the Son's subordination, not because of the divine essence. Um, Arius' emphasis is on the will of the Son being free to be obedient to the Father as an assistant, and the human being can follow suit, right? That's, that's the idea. Because the Son did these things, uh, the Son is an example for human beings, and human beings can only obey um, and follow the Son if they're closely related to the Son nature, which is as a creature. Um, hopefully that made sense, uh, that summary. Uh, so the predominant issue was first and foremost the idea that the Son was created. That's, that was the, the place where the debate was for the Nicenes, which, of course, by extension, includes the idea that um, the Son came into existence from non-existence. And then, of course, there was an issue with the, the identity of the Son being so close to human beings that it cut his ties to God the Father. Now, moving on to the early Arians, um, Robert Lethem actually introduces the followers of Arius as being hardly the followers of Arius. And he lists their tenets as follows, and so I'm going to summarize what Lethem says in my own words. So first, God was not always the Father because the Son was not always in existence. So similarity there. Second, the Son, or the Logos, is a creature made out of nothing. Um, so Logos, again, wisdom, or Son. Um, third, the Son is not immutable, so the Son can change. And the Son can change by nature and is only stable via the gift of God. So God is the reason why the Son is stable. Fourth, the Son's knowledge of God and even of himself is imperfect as a creature. Next, the Son was created by God to be an instrument by which to create all other things. And lastly, the unity between God and the Son is in morals only, not by nature or usia or essence. So here they stated that the Son could not or should not be worshipped. And in the incarnation, the Son only took a human body, not a human soul or mind. And I think I mentioned this before, but that discussion on the human soul and mind of Jesus will actually be discussed post 381 in more detail, especially as we get to Chalcedon, where we get the Chalcedonian definition. But anyway, uh, they believed that God could not come into nature without deifying or destroying it. Um, thus, they, they were pretty similar to some forms of Gnosticism in that way. So that you have the supreme God who cannot come into contact with uh, nature in some shape or form, and then you would have this intermediate uh, being, a lesser God who can come into creation and interact with creation. So it's safe to say that some of this thought was influenced by Gnostic thought, not necessarily the worldview that all matter is evil, etc., because they accepted that Christ actually took a human body, right? Um, and things like that. 
So some would later actually blame Origen for the development of Arian teachings, but the differences between Origen and Arianism are actually seen in Origen's stress upon the eternality of the sun. We talked about this, the difference between generation from external means versus generation from the essence of God. Um, and so his having the same essence of the Father really fixes that. Now, the alleged subordinationism of Origen is debated for, you know, ages, but it's still occurring within the Godhead, and so there's that. You can you can go down that rabbit hole if you want. So we actually have plenty of time. Um, that was pretty close. So let's get to Nicaea then. Now, Nicaea 1 uh, 325, like I said, was summoned by Constantine in response to the doctrinal dispute that began in Alexandria via the Arians. Um, we discussed the theology already. So in 325, the council would meet in Nicaea, which is in Northwest Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, right? Uh, there was about 300 bishops there, uh, most being from the Eastern Empire, and there's a couple from the West. Uh, Constantine took part in the debates and discussion as a chairman, um, and his advisor suggested that the council draft up a statement of faith and outline the reality of, that the Son, Jesus, was not a created being, uh, but rather he was eternal and divine. So the proposal was accepted, and through the drafts and redrafts, we get the Confession of Faith, uh, the Creed in Nicaea, but it's typically marked as an N to distinguish it from the Creed in 381, which is marked with a C. So N, or this Creed in Nicaea, 325, is we believe in one God, the Father, ruler of all, maker of all things visible and invisible, and we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father as only begotten, that is, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence of the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth, for um, who for us and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, being made man. He suffered, and on the third day he rose, and he ascended to the heavens, and he will come to judge the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, and then the anathema. But those who say that there was a time that he did not exist, and before being begotten he did not exist, and that he came into being from non-existence, or who allege that the Son of God is of another hypostasis, or usia, who is um, alterable or changeable, these the Catholic or universal church, apostolic church, condemns. Um, so hopefully, whenever we read that now, after listening to the previous episodes, you're like, oh, I recognize what points they're hitting on. Um, so the key affirmations of Nicaea focused on for the deity of Christ, obviously, um, and this is seen in the stress of the Son being of the same essence or substance of the Father. Now, as we mentioned prior, the phrase is extra-biblical language, um, but there's a comment by Athanasius talking about how it was necessary for it to be included because the Arians could agree if he just said the Son was from God, um, because they accepted that all creatures come from God, right? So they had to be specific. They had to say the Son is indivisible from the substance of the Father, always in the Father, and the Father is always in the Son. Um, and they were forced to use extra-biblical terminology in order to properly distinguish them from false teachings that also use, quote-unquote, biblical language. Um, and so that's that's a great way to understand a lot of these things where extra-biblical language is used. That precision of language is always important, and we see that whenever we're talking to people who uh, will use the same words as us, and we need to have them define them, because we're saying different things, obviously. So Jesus was not created, but identical to the being of the Father. Additionally, we read begotten, not made, and we talked about that before with genitas and agenitas and 
And the creed also says, begotten as only begotten of the Father, which affirmed the Son's eternal relation to the Father. Uh, so the Arians affirmed that the Father was unbegotten and uncreated, right? Um, and they would claim that the Son was created and begotten. So for those in Nicaea, they affirmed that the Father was indeed unbegotten and eternal, uh, while saying that the Son was also eternal, but uncreated, yet begotten of the Father. He was begotten, but not made, or begotten, not made. Uh so the son for Nicaea is not a creature. Rather, he is eternal. He is in a personal father-son relationship. And Nicaea also knows that the son is true God of true God, where the Arianism taught that the deity of the son was in the sense that he was from God, but he was not true God, um, as that would imply that they were the same nature. Uh, sidebar here is that you actually hear Jehovah's Witnesses say something similar. They'll say, well, he is a God, but he's not God Almighty. And so it's the same concept uh, right there. That's what they're saying. Um, Nicaea also focused upon the incarnation and that we must have the right identity of Christ because of its um, soteriological implications, that is, its implications on salvation. So as it can be observed from here, uh, the council hit a number of phrases to specifically refute Arian teachings and other teachings, such as uh, briefly mentioning the Holy Spirit, which they'll flesh out more in 381, uh, talking about the creation of everything visible and invisible against Gnosticism, uh, the interaction with cre- the interaction with creation contra Gnosticism. So they're hitting a bunch of different points and being very clear um, about what they're not for. Um, so this all said. Uh, Nicaea isn't without its problems. And we talked about this here and there so far, uh, but the terms become problematic. Um, as time went on, the terms became too ambiguous and they had to be further um, hammered out. So we're going to retouch on this because I mentioned it in the survey, I believe. But um, hypostasis, for example, which we know as person, and usio, which we know as nature, were often interchangeable. Um, and so in 325, that distinction was not made. Uh, it could have four potential definitions, or four understandings, rather. Hypostasis and usia could be uh, interchangeable and used to describe either what God is as three or what he is as one. Um, hypostasis could refer to the three and usia being ignored or rejected. Um, hypostasis could restir- uh, refer to uh, a distinct existence in usia for nature, or um, it could just be confused. And you can find writers using them in a various, you know, various ways. There was no sharp distinction until we get to the, really, um, Athanasius is the one who brings up these confusions. And then the Cappadocians are the ones who hammer them out and help solve the issue. Um, but the anathema in the creed actually condemns that the son is um, of another hypostasis or usia of the father. So if you said that the son was of a different hypostasis or person of the father, uh, then you're condemned. But that means that it's being, it's advocating for modalism. It's saying that um, you can't say that the son is a, a different person of the father. And that's just because of the confusion of language. It's not because that's not that's what they meant, because they've obviously condemned modalism before the Aaron controversy arose. Um, so in some sense, the anathema would become heretical which calls for 381 to be more precise. Whenever those three, whenever those clear distinctions are made between hypostasis and usia later, because as we know, the son has a different hypostasis from the father, and that's been a, 
a major theological stress, just not in precise terminology so far. Um, so from Nicaea, we have this confusion between person and substance, and this distinction would be hammered out later on, as I said. Um, but another issue with terminology um, is with the term homo usios, or same essence of the Father. We often hear it um, as a champion term of orthodoxy, but the Gnostics actually use this term, of course, in a different way. Um, even though we tend to think of homo usios as a... Um, champion term for orthodoxy, it's actually been suggested that it's just a term just to be used in spite of the Arians. Um, Robert Leatham says that, uh, so we can reasonably say, sure, that it was not intended to teach the numerical identity of the Father and the Son. In fact, it may not have been intended to say much other than to unite all opposed to Arius by denying that the Son came from the source, um, by a source other than God. So, from here, we can move from Nicaea to the aftermath of Nicaea. Um, and the events following Nicaea, the theological nuances are difficult to track and categorize. You'll find different approaches for how to categorize them um, by historians and theologians, but um, all of them will be a means of simplifying for the sake of uh, convenience or coherency, and we're going to follow that along here. And so what you'll hear here, um, what you'll hear here is a simplification, um, a condensed edition for ease. And I'm going to follow Robert Leatham's categorizations because I prefer them over uh, Schaff and over um, Nick Needham. So Nick Needham's is pretty helpful as well. So first, we're going to talk about the different groups, basically. And we have one, two, three, four, five different views predominantly here. First, we have um, Marcellus of Ancria and the Mia hypostatic theologians. So the teaching was simply that God is one hypostasis. He is one person and one usia or nature. The Logos is united to God and one of the same thing as God and is only called the Son after the incarnation. So if you don't recognize that, that's modalism. God is called the Father and the Son. But there's only one hypostasis, one person, and usia, nature. Um, homo usia, same essence, um, for uh, this group meant identical being. And so we have that modalism there. Um, so from here we have the Anomians, and they follow more closely with the Arians. And they say that the Son is unlike the Father. The Father is unbegotten, and the Son is generated... But they differ in that the Father uh, is different in person and substance. The Son is created by the Father's will, and he participates in the Father in operation, but not in his substance. Now, the homoousians, the same, of the same nature, note that the Son is of the same identical being as the Father. Uh, the term would be abandoned, uh, actually, until Basil the Great, uh, because of that lack of clarity on Usia. It was creating issues. Um, so Usia as a single divine nature would actually um, solve that, and that term would become more commonplace. Um, Homoi Usians uh, were those who were anti-Aryan, but desired to avoid modalism. So they taught that the Son is of similar or like substance to the Father in order to distinguish between the two persons and maintain the unity in a singular substance. And then... Um, Homo Ian Arians were those who held that Christ was like the Father, or merely like the Father, 
and subordinate to the Father. Uh, and so there's a distinction in being, a distinction in nature, and the Son was called from the Father's will and not in his nature. So basically more Arians. So I guess we'll wrap this here, and then we'll move into Athanasius and the Cappadocians next time. And so that'll be it. I actually fit more in here than I expected. So God bless you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.